This morning has been such a blessing since the time we got here earlier this morning and, and sang these songs and, and ran through them. I've just felt God's presence. And um, I think being able to reflect and see as we anticipate the Christmas season and, and then it, it's upon us. It's just a reminder for me that, that even the work that we do here and that sometimes it feels, um, feels like we are working and doing this work. At Christmas, it's a reminder that he is in complete control and he is the all-powerful one and that this is a real reminder in my life and our ministry of everything that God is doing and has done. So we have been preaching through the book of Luke uh, over the last six weeks or so, and it's brought us to a, a, a fun passage, a passage known as Luke chapter 2, and Luke chapter 2 is, um, by all accounts, the Christmas story. This is where we find uh, the story of the census and Joseph and Mary making the journey to Bethlehem and, and all, those, all the pieces of the puzzle that we really understand. Uh, I, I preached last week pretty, uh, pretty straightforward on um, what it means, what Christmas really means to all of humanity and mankind in a sermon called His Name is John, a reminder that whatever God says, if God says it is, it is. Y'all remember last week? And, um, and so this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach, and we're going to take this familiar passage of Scripture and say, God, what are some lessons, what are some things behind the scenes here that are at play that we can take from the manger from this Christmas story. We're going to read um, 14 verses here, so hold on to yourselves. Uh, I got it on the screen. If you have a Bible, you use an app, any of those things, if you want to follow along, that would be great. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 1. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. David's ancient home, he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. I love that. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. He's probably the only one, right? <laughs> Like, if you find that, that's him. <laughs> Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I want to say this as I get into this story. 
Um, those of you who've been journeying through Luke with us, remember the first sermon we preached on the book of Luke, the first four verses where Luke tells us who he's writing this letter to, and he says he's carefully investigated all of these reports. That means he has firsthand information. He interviewed the eyewitnesses, and he says, I'm writing this to you, Theophilus, is the guy who's getting this letter. We call him Theo, just to make life easier. He's writing to Theo, who's in Rome, and he's saying, Theo, I've interviewed everybody. I've researched everything I heard, and here's an accurate, and he says, I'm writing this to you so you can be certain of the things you've been taught. Luke was a historian, a physician. He was meticulous. This is a real letter written by a real person with real confidence that what is in it are facts and not sometimes what feel like a, a fable or, you know, that's the story of Nazareth and the nativity and all. No, this, was, this really happened is what Luke is saying. And so we, if we begin with that in mind, this has very big consequences in our life. We're going to look at three lessons from the manger here, um, and we're just going to kind of tackle them one by one, and then we'll wrap it up and put a bow on it. That'd be good for Christmas, wouldn't it? Uh, we're going to look at three things. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is God's providence in this story. I want to talk about God's providence, and uh, it's so obvious in it. Sometimes we overlook it, um, but I just want to take a little bit of time and slow down. And, and there's two clear doctrines in Scripture um, that you're, we're going to talk about in this little subheading. One is God's providence, all right? And, and let me tell you what that is. And I just said doctrines on Christmas, and you're like, oh, boy, this is going to be a... It's not... It's supposed to be Christmas Eve. It's fun. It's a major. No doctrine. Come on. <laughs> Y'all there? Y'all all right? Everybody hanging on? So you got God's providence, which says this. this if you got a question, I looked at gotquestions.org just for you. And this is what it said. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole. The physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. The doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. This says that God is in control of all things. It is in direct contradiction to everything the world teaches us that we might have bad luck or good luck, a good day or a bad day, or that this might be just by happenstance and chance and fate that we fell into this place or this situation or we met these people or these things happened. And yet the Bible teaches us God is always in control. Nobody has ever usurped the authority or the will of God. God has never been like, well, I thought I had it worked out and Jared messed it up right? He is God. He's completely sovereign and in control. Another way to put this, someone put, is God in eternity past in the counsel of his own will ordained everything that will happen. The Old Testament writer said, you've ordered my steps and numbered my days. All the days have been ordained before me. 
He says, you ordained everything that will happen, yet in no sense is God the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. So that's the two things, right? He's like, well, if God's in complete control, and he's, he's in complete control of my fate and all his lives, and so then I just need to float around and let, it, let me see what he does. Yeah, the Bible teaches this thing that in our mind is confusing. When he says he's in control of everything, yet he very clearly gives us personal responsibility. That means, for good or bad, I picked out to wear the sweater this morning. God did, I mean, he didn't make me pick this sweater. Right? Are you with me for a minute? So, so we can make our own decisions. Providence is beyond foreknowledge. We, we want it, like our human minds want to go to like, oh, no, God just knew what I was going to do. And so he responded and reacted this way. Providence is bigger than that. It means that somehow the God of all creation works through our humble and feeble attempts to make decisions and work and do things on our own. Somehow both of those are absolutely true. All right? So I need you to ride with me for just a minute. There's stories of this in the Bible, um, many of them. Um, this is a reminder of Romans 8.28 that says, God is working together what things? All things. Like that's the summary. He is not, he's working together some things and Jared's got the rest. He's working together all things for the good of those who love him or are called to his purpose. This is Romans 8, 28. The story comes clear in the story of Joseph, Old Testament. Many of you know that story. He was one of, of 12 brothers and the brothers got jealous of him, got mad at him, threw him in a pit, uh, sold him to slavery. Uh, he got he got taken to Egypt and, and just, it was like one thing after another went bad, it'd go good, then he ended up in jail. But somehow God worked through all of that and Joseph became like prime minister of Egypt, became the number two leader in Egypt. This is history, again, not fable, Bible stuff. This is history, became number two leader in Egypt. And when the famine hit Israel, Joseph's dad sends his brothers to Egypt to the person who controls the food that can save them, and when they walk up, they don't even recognize that it's their brother Joseph. And you remember what the Bible says about that story? He says, what they intended for evil, God used for good. So you have that in the story of Joseph. They thought they were, I mean, they thought their brother's like, we're so bad and mean, and God's like, oh, wait. I'm going to use this for your good. Well, the story of Judas Iscariot, right? Betrays Jesus, turns him in, sells him for silver. Yet we know God in the flesh, Jesus, had to be surrendered to the Romans, had to die on the cross. God in his sovereignty uses that. So let's see it in this story. How does it play out? It's reminded uh, for me, I think of uh, Micah 5.2, Old Testament prophecy, all right? Here, here's what it said. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. This is years before Jesus, centuries before Jesus. Now, what this prophecy has said is that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Where is Mary pregnant? 
Where's she at? Where's she, where's she living? She is in Nazareth. God's like, all right. Baby's getting ready to be born. I've already told the world he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Got to get her there. I got to get her from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And in God's providence, it begins to play out. And I want you to see three things he uses. He'll use the same things in our lives today. He uses three things. The first thing he uses uh, is an ungodly person. Caesar Augustus, one of the most evil like rulers that ever ruled in Rome, who thought he was the most powerful man in the world. So powerful that he could just say, today we host a census. Every one of you, get up and go to your hometown. That's a lot of power. And he thinks he's just living out and prideful and being whatever. And God's like, oh gosh, Caesar, you're funny. See, I'm going to use your evil desires I'm going to move my favored one, Mary, because her fiancé is Joseph. Joseph's lineage means he has to go to Bethlehem. Anytime you think you're in control, you're not. Anytime it looks like someone else is in control, they're not. The things that in your life that feels like ungodly people, unholy things happening to you. I want you to know that don't forget Romans 8, 28 says God is using, working all things to the good of those that love him and are called by his purpose. Here we have God using an ungodly person, the ruler of the civilized world who thinks he is making decisions to build up his kingdom and, and God is moving Mary to Bethlehem to born to birth the real king. And he uses an ungodly person. Uh, he uses also an unfair process. Ungodly person, unfair process. All right. Who in their trimester will be so excited to go on an 80-mile walk? <laughs> Feels very unfair. I was like, wait, I was getting ready to have this baby. If I'm Mary in Nazareth, I'm like, are you serious? We have to go to Bethlehem? Like, we have to walk all the way there? We, you want me to go to Bethlehem? And see, in, in our culture mindset, that is injustice, and it's unfair. And we, we, we demand so many times justice for ourselves in the present. We want to be treated fairly in the here and now. We will fight for it. When so many times God has already leveled the playing field for eternity and laid out justice for eternity. And here we find this humility, the humble spirit who said, I am the Lord's servant. I know this isn't fair. But this is what I've been called to do. This is my situation right now. I'm not going to get mad about it. I'm just going to get on the donkey. Whatever they're going to do, they're going to get to Bethlehem. And they're going to go, and it's just an unfair process. How, how this is it unfair? Guess what this is all about? Paying taxes. That's fair, right? 
so excited. I got to walk 80 miles, and then so I, you can take my taxes. And not only take my taxes, but I'm going to pay taxes to Rome, which I can't stand. It's unfair. Life's not fair. I've had so many things in my life, not fair. You've had so many things in your life, not fair. God was never out of control. He was never panicked. Oh, man, it's start to wobble off here. Let me fix it. No. Control. Working all things together for our good. Unfit place. Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Bethlehem is the places he's going to work. What? We talked about we talked about Mary. The angel told her, "You have found the favor of God, Mary." And we talked about what we think of as favor. If we're highly favored by God, then we should be highly blessed. And we think of blessed as material and physical things. Yet here we see as Mary, who's highly favored, takes this long journey, this long track, gets there, and there's no room at the inn, right? If she's highly favored, she should have had like an Uber or something, like a limo, a fancy, I don't know, fancy donkey trailer, I don't know, like something. If she's favored, she should have gone there and had the Marriott, like it should have been like we have the president's suite for you. Yet it was unfair and it was an unfit place. Imagine the difference of the story if Mary had have had a nice ride. There would have been room for the inn. Jesus was born in the president's suite. Totally contrary to the character of God. It wasn't an accident. Don't get mad at the innkeeper. He was meant to be in a manger. As his providence, and the same providence he was working in Jesus, he works in our lives to pursue us, to reveal himself to us. To show us he cares and he loves and he can take even our brokenness and the things we messed up. And you can begin to see in my brokenness, I, I see God's grace. I see that he still loves me. And he pursues us in that way. We see God's providence here. And it, it means to me, sometimes God's got to get us to a certain place before we can really see him. I mean, sometimes it's got to hurt. Sometimes relationships have to break. Sometimes life has to be hard. Sometimes we need a bad health report. Sometimes we need the difficulty. You say, are you making that up? Peter said, First Peter chapter 1. He said, rejoice in these trials. and Rejoice because it's for now for a season if need be, that's his exact words. If need be, for the trying of your faith, to prove your faith genuine. 
to prove the most important thing in your life, that is that you trust in Jesus and you depend upon him. If God needs to let you go through a season of tests and trials, he doesn't give it to you. He doesn't cause you to sin and, and sin has consequences. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying he is using and he will allow things to come into your life to open your eyes to him. He doesn't say, if I want to, he says, if you need it, I'm doing this because I deeply care about you, Jared. So we see this in his providence, this place he gets us. Many times I feel like it's a cycle in life. I'll get comfortable and complacent, and he's like, come on on a journey. <laughs> Step out of that. And then it gets really hard, and I go th through seasons like I'm confused, and I'm trying to do it myself, and I can't do it, and I end up depending on God again. Total dependence is where he always wants us. And I'm depending on him, but then I get comfortable. And it's this cycle of the Christian walk where, where we, he's constantly drawing us to our attention that we need him and to always be depending on him. That's his providence. Where's God moving you to? Where's he revealing himself to you? Are you seeing it? Is he there? You know why I'm in Pikeville? I got mad at a piano teacher when I was a senior in high school why I'm here like I was supposed to go to Moorhead piano teacher didn't show up for a lesson so I'm, going, I'm not going I was supposed to audition for a scholarship didn't even go to the audition like selfish ignorance sent me to Pikeville College God used it somehow some way my dad's like it's a miracle God's providence. Where is it in your life? It's, I promise it's there. Promise he's there. Second thing we see is Joseph's obedience. Joseph had some responsibility in this. Now we can get into the philosophical debate. Did God pick Joseph because Joseph, he knew Joseph would go and be, I don't know. Like We don't know. Those are questions you will never answer until we get to heaven. Here's what I know is in this process, Joseph was obedient. He took Mary as his wife, engaged to her. She was pregnant, wasn't his. Could have put her away, didn't put her away. He got the call. The census came out. He needed to go to Bethlehem. He got the things together, and they went to Bethlehem. Important lesson to remember. Obedience does not equal comfort. He did not obey, and then, oh, it got so easy after that. The Uber showed up, and the room was there, right? It got more difficult. God does not promise comfort when we obey and when we're obedient, but he does promise the discomfort, the struggles, the things that come along. You can be confident in knowing it has a purpose and that you can trust him in it. That you can trust him. He loves you. He cares for you. And so, but we see we have a responsibility for obedience in this. We have the responsibility to choose whether to follow Jesus or not from the get-go. When he says, follow me, when he says, Peter, he, Peter, are you going to choose to follow me or not? We choose whether to surrender and obey. Things did not get better uh, it got worse. Because we don't obey for temporary 
blessings. We obey because God has already given us eternal blessings. Are you with me for a minute? We're not just obeying to make God happy. We're not just obeying to get the temporary win. And we're not Pavlov's dog just responding to, you know, I want a treat. I want to be good. We are, we are obeying out of gratitude because God in all of his grace in our sinful, broken state loved us anyway and gave us hope of eternity and then draws us closer and closer to him. God's providence, Joseph's uh, uh, obedience, his responsibility, these two go hand in hand just like it does in our own lives. Then we see the shepherd's experience as we get ready to close. I'm God up in heaven, and I'm not, <laughs> FYI. <laughs> Jesus is coming. He's been born. Rally up the angels. Let's go tell some people. He chose to tell shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest on the social class in Israel. They actually weren't allowed to even communicate or be or talk to or be around or dine with uh, other people in society. They were really estranged and set to the side. I'm so thankful we serve a God that comes to people like that. That he didn't choose the Pharisees, those who had the fancy homes and thought they were living and thought they were holy and thought they had God pleased because of all the rules that were, they were following and they were trying to be their best. And yet Jesus, when he eventually gets to speak to them, he says, oh, you, you are close to me with your lips, but not with your heart. And here's the crazy thing for these shepherds. They were more than likely shepherds who were overseeing the sheep and the, the lamb that were used in the temple for sacrifice. We have a thing uh, in our culture in America today where if a big company is going to lay people off, they send out a warn notice. It's like, hey, we're going to have to lay you off in the future. This was God's warn notice to these shepherds. You see, for generations, to please God, the Israelites felt they had to take a sacrifice into the temple to get their sins cleansed for a certain amount of time. And you see, the perfect Lamb of God had been born, and so he goes to the people that says, you've been part of my process, you, I, I really don't need you anymore to do what you've been doing. You understand this? I want you to come see the real Lamb of God has been born in Bethlehem, and he's in this little manger. And he goes to the, 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 the most broken, the most cast down people and invites them first to experience and see the birth of Jesus. The good news came to plain and ordinary. He comes to people as they are. I love this verse from the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Here's what I think is the risk of Christmas. We get so excited about Jesus in a manger, we're tempted to leave him there. 
We're tempted to, to stop there and forget, oh no, <laughs> that's not the end of the story. Jesus is not still in a manger. Jesus, he grew as a young child and then turned into a young man who became one of the greatest teachers, who even the Pharisees says, who is this man with teachers with such authority? who began to roam around a real place and a real town on the other side of the earth, and be, he began to do things that nobody had ever done before. He healed blind people. He, he took people who had been blind since birth, and everybody knew this person that begged by the street, knew this person his entire life, and Jesus healed him. And all the Pharisees would be like, I don't know, man. I just know that was, that was he used to be blind. I don't know. He's not now. He called people who had been lame their whole life to pick up their bed and walk with it. And Luke wrote all this who investigated it scrupulously and believed it with all of his heart, died for it. He performed all these miracles. He took, he took a, a Lunchable, fed the whole school system. came to the cross submitted obedient accepted the punishment for sin which is death that I deserved that you deserved all Think the emotional weight of no one. God, this isn't fair. He was a human. He felt that. He said, this cup could pass from me. But not my will, but yours. Talk about unfair. Deserved heaven, deserved the throne, actually stepped off the throne, took all of the punishment for all of the sin of the world. And died. And then he did what none of us could do. Conquered the curse. The greatest miracle. Three days later. Resurrected. Go to the end of Luke. He's certain of it. Hundreds of people saw him recorded it. Hundreds of people died believing it. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he said, I'm going to send you a helper. He said, I will be with you until the end of the age. He says, you will never be alone. He says, I will go with you. I'm not still in the cradle. I'm not still in the manger. My invitation to you this morning as the worship team comes and we get ready to sing one more song is for you to look with open eyes and open hearts in your life and know that the good, the bad, the bad decisions you've made, the bad things that happened to you, God did not cause it. 
but he can use it. He can use it to open your eyes to the truth of a God who loves you. And he doesn't just want to save you uh, from, from hell and save you and put you to heaven and eternity. That's one part of it. The other part is he wants to come inside of you and work in you and through you for the people around you. Part of our heart here at New Beginnings is to see people experience Jesus in real and relevant ways. I think Jesus is impactful. I think he's in the church. I think he's working in and through, not just New Beginnings, but every believer here in this place, I believe, is called to have purpose. We were prepared. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good things. He prepared in advance for us to do. The body of Christ, if you are a believer, you are in full-time ministry. You're called to be a light in the classroom, in the law office, in the, in, in, the, in the hospital, wherever you go and wherever you be. Don't leave Jesus in the manger, man. This impacts your whole life. It brings you to a radical reorientation of who you are and what the world is. See him in your life. See him in, in the broken relationship. See him in the good relationship. See him in the divorce. See him in the addiction. See him in all those things. He says, no, I came. I can reconcile. I can redeem. I can pull you out of all of that. Not just to have life, but have it abundantly right now. That's the invitation at Christmas. Emmanuel. God is with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that I look around this congregation. I've seen lives completely turned around. I've seen you work in so many ways. I see my own life, my own self, who was so rebellious and prideful at certain times in my walk with you that you just patiently continue to reveal yourself to me. You continually to work on. I see people in this place who who have been in addiction and broke free. I see people in this place, now they're leading people, other people out of addiction. I see people who are still in it and fighting the struggle, but trust you. I see people in this place who think money is security and you've showed them that it's not. That someday it's going to burn, it's all going to be gone. God, break our hearts for the little baby in a manger. Let's invite the Jesus who now sits on the throne to be king of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.